Thanks for coming out and spending your Saturday afternoon here as we discuss this topic. It's a difficult subject, not just for priests or parents, but especially for children. And that's one of the things that I want to highlight before we get started, simply because um, our children today are growing up in a world without a readily available archetype of what it means to be a man or a woman. And there's a lot to talk about here, so before we do, I think it's important that we're properly oriented. Because in order to attain any goal, we have to know what we're aiming at. So I think, I think it's best that I tell you initially, without any dressing up, without any flair, uh, that my goal is not to simply dismantle an ideology or win a culture war or sell books or increase a career trajectory. It's to inspire you and to inspire this community and really to inspire myself to live the Christian life. We can't just walk the walk, as they say, but we, or we can't just talk the talk, we have to walk the walk. And as much as I dislike that platitude in particular, it encompasses exactly what we have to do. It's a call to, to battle, really, that starts in our own hearts. It's a call to gird ourselves with truth that we might embody this truth to the world. And perhaps most of all, and most unpleasant of all, this is a call to suffering, to martyrdom, which is to witness to the truth, to willingly accept the preconditions of this world, this fallen world that we live in, and its pain and its suffering, mortality, hurt, betrayal, and to take responsibility for it as the chief of sinners. This is the only way forward. We do this when we, when we suffer without, we suffer the deleterious effects of the fallen world without complaining about it or trying to avoid it or blame someone else for it. When we peer into the darkness of our own souls and acknowledge our shortcomings, and come to see that, as Solzhenitsyn put it, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor classes, nor political parties, but right through the heart of every human man, of every man. This line shifts inside of us, it oscillates with the years. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, every time you make a choice, you're turning that central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. You are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. So our battle is not against flesh and blood. There are no good and bad people. There are choices, good and bad choices. And this is what we have to choose to do. Take our cross upon our shoulders and walk together with Christ towards Golgotha. To do this in the face of suffering is the Christian task. And the church trains us to do this with the discipline she seeks to establish within us by her services in fasting, in almsgiving, in bearing shame and confession, with repentance. And that's where we have to start if we want to get anywhere. And when we do this, what we find is, though we may not have set out to do it for our own gain, but really for the salvation of others, we find that we do gain, and we gain Christ, and that ultimately is our goal. And this resurrection of gaining Christ, even in the midst of suffering, prefigures our resurrection by being a resurrection for us today. So in our talk today, we will attempt to stay grounded by calling attention to our own lives in the midst of what seems to be the madness of the world and our own responsibilities as Christians to become Christ. And with that belabored introduction, we can begin. 
Wednesday of this last week, I met Emily. Emily is a 23-year-old desister, which is to say a former self-proclaimed trans kid. Her story begins, as many do, in her early teens, navigating the inane intricacies of tween social life and the difficulties that are associated with it. She didn't like traditionally girly things. It was difficult for her to find friends and she was frequently bullied. The onset of puberty exacerbated her problems. She was uncomfortable with the changes in her body. The development from a girlish physical frame to that of a woman brought with it jokes made at her expense and attention she didn't want. In fact, she hated it. And she came to hate herself as well. She expressed this in despair and self-harm. And then, after a while, she found out about the trans community. She didn't like traditionally feminine things, so maybe she was really a boy. That first thought hit with great impact. Over that summer, she gathered what information she could, including the oft-repeated mantra, if you think you're trans, you probably are, and entered this new school year proclaiming her pronouns as he, him, and that her new name was Jacob. The bullying stopped immediately. She gained a vibrant social life, plenty of friends, but the one thing that didn't change was her parents. They hated her. At least that's what she thought. See, they wouldn't allow her to get on hormones. She was 16 years old, and she had her life figured out. She was ready to move forward in the world as Jacob. What did her parents know, anyway? At 18, she was told by friends to pursue medical transition, because she could legally do so on her own. But she began to hesitate. That's a big decision. Her friends cajoled her. It's what you want. It's what you want. If you don't do this, you'll hate yourself even more. You might even kill yourself. But she wasn't sure. Just because she liked traditionally masculine things didn't necessarily mean she was a man, did it? And as she began to seriously question her trans identity a couple years after coming out and finally decided to desist, after recognizing that her social gaffes were due to autism spectrum disorder and her self-hatred was due to untreated underlying mental health conditions, she began to be attacked by this very same community that showed her love in the first place, or what she thought was love. You were never really trans in the first place, they would say. And worse, I can't believe you want us all to die. She had never said anything about them dying, but it didn't matter. Today, Emily is 23. She gets married this next weekend, and she's forever grateful to her parents, on whose behalf she retained the bodily function as a natal female. Emily was fortunate. She got out before what Abigail Schreier says is irreversible damage. Chloe, however, did not. Today, Chloe is 18, but her journey began much younger. At 13, she was put on pu puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. She underwent a double mastectomy at 15. And all of this only to detransition a year later. A term that tends to mean, in this case, get off the hormones and begin to accept and live out life as your God-given sex. Now today, 13 is old for puberty blockers. They can start as early as eight. The experiences of Emily and Chloe embody two distinct statistics that I think it's vital we understand. 11 separate studies were conducted observing gender non-conforming children over several years and demonstrated that on average, 80% this does not include children that refuse to follow up. It could be higher than 80%. On average, 80% of children who suffer with gender dysphoria wind up desisting 
that is going back and living as their birth sex. This, this period where, where they are not given uh, puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones is an approach called watchful waiting. And it was termed such by Dr. Kenneth Zucker. This was how Emily's parents treated the situation. In stark contrast to this, though, children that socially transitioned and were put on puberty blockers all continued to cross sex hormones. In these studies, every single one of them continued on to cross sex hormones and many of them to surgical transition. This is Chloe's experience. Contrary to the wait and see approach, the model of care applied to Chloe. And note, this, this is not because her parents were bad people. They wanted to help her. They were told consistently, if you do not do this, your child will die. It's emotional blackmail. No one wants to hear that under any circumstances, and every single parent that is told this would do whatever they could. But Chloe was treated with gender affirmative care, which is now the gold standard. Where a child is affirmed in their self-identification without reservation, which includes a social transition with pronouns, different name, eventually puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgery. Many of the children that this has happened to, like Chloe, are convinced at the time that hormones and surgery will solve their problems, but they don't. In fact, in many cases, they cause further complications. What this data shows is that about 80% of self-proclaimed trans kids who are suffering from gender dysphoria desist within a few years after puberty, but 100% of children that receive early intervention or what is now the standard model of care, gender affirmative care, go on to all of these steps, the effects of which require lifelong maintenance and increased health risks. What it doesn't tell us, what this data does not tell us, however, is how many of these kids go on to regret it. And many, many do. Now the reality we're living in today, where entire friends groups, entire social circles are coming out as trans is something of an anomaly. And I think it's important we understand what's, what's going on in the world first, because there are multiple delineating factors we have to talk about, which we will. But this is an anomaly. Uh, especially where the primary demographic is teenage girls. We have about a hundred years or so of data on gender dysphoria and from that data we know that it affects about 0.005 to 0.01 percent of men. That's one in 10,000. And women it's 0.002 to 0.003 which is one in 33,000. What these statistics reveal is that until recently, gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder was considered extremely rare, with the classification of rare being defined in America as affecting 86 out of 100,000 people. To put it in perspective, 0.01, which is the higher end of the male scale, is, is 10 out of 100,000. 0.003 is 3 out of 100,000. That's rare. So why this sudden explosion of trans self-identifying identifying kids? Now, one narrative is that it's because there's no longer a stigma. People can be who they really are, who they authentically are without fear of, of being imprisoned or hurt. People feel safe to come out as their authentic selves. But this does not, in fact, account for the increase in one demographic. Those born between 1996 and today. 
in Great Britain, for example, they began monitoring uh, changes in this uh, treatment of gender dysphoria and age groups much earlier than we have in the US. And what they found that was the rise of gender dysphoria in teenage girls between 2009 and 2017 increased 4,000%. As of June of this year, a survey released by Pew Research placed the number of young adults, now this is just one age demographic, placed the number of young adults identifying as trans or non-binary at 5%. 5%. That's 1 in 20. That's a lot. How did this happen? How did it happen so quickly? That's exactly what Dr. Lisa Littman wondered when this demographic inversion caught her eye. Now, being a researcher, she did a survey of 256 parents of self-identifying trans kids and found out that at least 62.5%, roughly, uh, had comorbid mental health disorders or autism spectrum disorder. And 86.7%, 86.7% reported an increase in social media and internet usage directly prior to coming out. Now, nearly everyone of those 256 surveyed said there was no prior indication of any kind of gender dysphoria as children, as young children. Now, now given this shift, Lisa Littman turned this radical onset gender dysphoria, which I think is important to distinguish from what we might call persistent gender dysphoria, which has been with us for longer. While uh, it's unsurprising that she was uh, severely socially, academically abused for this study, and it went back to Brown University, only to be re-released a year later with no changes in data. But you're not going to hear that last part. <laughs> Just that it was retracted. That's what you'll hear. Dr. Kenneth Zucker was likewise. He's the one that uh, advocates for, for waiting, essentially. And uh, he, uh, he fell out of favor with society in 2016 and uh, was viciously slandered and subsequently fired. But the list of uh, traditionally left-leaning individuals that were fired for this research doesn't end there. In fact, it includes people like J.K. Rowling, uh, a neurologist and sexologist, Dr. Deborah So, who, following Dr. Ray Blanchard, wrote a book detailing the neurological scans of individuals uh, with gender dysphoria, showing that many gender nonconforming youth, now identifying as trans, have consistent scans as people who are presently same-sex attracted adults. Abigail Schreier, Helen Joyce, Kathleen Stock, etc. All these were viciously attacked after writing books just detailing concerns about this movement. Just concerns. And remember, these are women that support same-sex marriage, abortion, and for their entire political lives were left of the aisle. They're just concerned. But instead of attempting to address their concerns, what we find is they were banished from the conversation altogether, or at least tried. They tried to banish them, seeking not just the retraction of their work, but the destruction of their livelihood and social standing. What many of these researchers, including myself, have come to believe is that many of the trans-identifying kids are identifying this way, not because of some lifelong gender dysphoria, or forgive me for putting it this way, but any legitimacy to a claim of being the opposite sex. 
or feeling like the opposite sex, but rather it's due to an echo chamber of social media, the media in general, and that tied with the general difficulties of adolescence, the discomforts of puberty, and the social capital received from identifying this way. Not to mention comorbidities like depression, anxiety, self-harm, autism, and so on. Now this echo chamber produces a kind of social contagion. And this has happened before, it's, it's well documented. For his part, Ethan, Ethan Waters detailed how anorexia, nervosa, the recovered memory movement and multiple personality disorder spread like wildfire across uh, different demographics and geographic landscapes. And it, you can read about this in his book, Crazy Like Us, which came out in 2010. 2010, mind you. <laughs> he doesn't talk about uh, transgenderism. He's just talking about other things. But this isn't isolated to the 20th century, which is interesting. There was a dancing plague, for instance, in 1518. One woman starts dancing in July. A whole bunch of people start dancing. They're having a great time. And then some people dance to their deaths. Or consider the laughing phenomenon in Pentecostal circles, which Father Seraphim, Father Seraphim Rose, um, detailed in, in one of his books. And he wasn't really convinced that it was the Holy Spirit, like the Pentecostal movement liked to think. I mean, I think that passage about testing the spirits is rather important. Um, so something is driving this. Something is driving this, but that is why I think it's important to frame it as a struggle against the evil one over which Christ is ultimately victorious. Because otherwise we'll get wrapped up in a culture war that is not helping anyone. There's a, another interesting term which was coined by Ian Hacking called the looping effect, whereby a classification or codification or detailing symptoms of a certain diagnosis come to shape the disorder itself. And more recently, Ethan Waters, in September 21st, first actually, so just last month, uh, September 27th, excuse me, wrote an article in the New York Times entitled The Forgotten Lessons of the Recovered Memory Movement. Now, in this, in this article, he describes how therapists would make general comments about daydreaming. Do you daydream? Do you feel nauseous sometimes? You probably have repressed memories. Now, these are general enough that they could apply to anyone. And then, because of that, they would have a client which would make them money and which they would take down a psychological journey, wind up manifesting the exact condition they proposed to diagnose them with in the first place. And while he merely describes the hist historicity of this account and specifically how it caused more harm than good and then was conveniently forgotten by society at large, one can't help but think that he's proposing this as a cautionary tale to those wrapped up in the transgender movement. The point here that I, I think we need to make is that trans-identifying kids are experiencing distress. That's unquestionable. They're experiencing pain, confusion. I mean, I would wager that a number, a number of us that have, have grown through this adolescent phase uh, may even have forgotten how difficult it was. Or, you know, if you're in school and you just think, man, I have no time. I'm in high school. I have no time. And then you grow up and you have some kids and you have a job or two or three and you realize that your perspective was limited. The point, though, is that their idea is that transitioning will solve all of this. And let's think about it. It sounds pretty good. Like if you're young, if you're naive, and you don't know what you now know about life, that life is painful, unrelenting, and sometimes can be downright hell. That sounds pretty good. I mean, a magic pill? 
to alleviate all distress, sign me up. Like, that sounds nice. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying about accepting the preconditions of living in a fallen world. We can't sell this idea that life is a smooth ride or that it's some happy, clappy, fun club to, to join the church. It's not. The tr joining the church, being baptized or chrismated into the church, it's not going to solve all your problems. It might actually make them more difficult. <laughs> and the sooner, the sooner we realize this, the sooner our children realize this, the better. And we do this uh, by not rescuing them and everything, but, but also by uh, responding appropriately to life challenges ourselves. And this is where we come in as Christians who mount the cross, go to Golgotha, and show this to the world, only to be resurrected and wake up joyful to do it again. Now, a lot of what we're seeing with the way society has codified a lot of this stuff is actually traceable to a change in an overall culture of, of parenting and subsequently a dynamic that evolved and grew on college campuses, peaking in 2016 and 2017. This, of course, was chronicled by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind. In fact, what's interesting is they both long um, proponents of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is changing your mindset will help, right? That's what cognitive behavioral therapy is about. And actually, uh, Bishop Alexis Trader wrote a really good book about it from an Orthodox Christian perspective and how he sees a lot of our practices reflected in CBT. But they noted in their book that a lot of what they're finding on college campuses are actually cognitive distortions that CBT tries to train people against falling into. And what they say is that society has given us as an, a new truth that we can't suffer or we're going to die. We just can't handle it. This is what they call the myth of being fragile or anti-fragile. That kids are fragile, we must do everything to protect them, that's the parenting part. The kid part is a, an emphasis on psychological well-being, which is an, actually an interesting shift from an emphasis on physical safety to psychological safety. That happened somewhere in the 1980s or the 1990s. And this uh, was accompanied by the idea that words are violence and anyone who disagrees with you causes you harm. They're a danger to your health. One can see how this could produce an echo chamber, especially as we're now accustomed to, you know, flipping on, I don't know, the news or hearing in coffee hour that someone said something really good about this topic, but you can't find it because it's, it's no longer available online because it was taken off by the uh, powers that be. Um, cancel culture, silencing individuals. That's mainstream. That's, that's what's happening. Now, college campuses are a breeding ground for this, essentially. But this myth of fragility, that we're in danger when people disagree with us, is nonsense. It could only be perpetuated in a world where individuals seek affirmation of erroneous ideas by broader society. And when those in society demure, they're bigots. You don't have to worry about countering their arguments. You don't have to take their concerns seriously like Dr. Littmans or any of these other individuals that have written and researched against this because they hate you and they want you to die. And that very much was Emily's experience when she desisted. So, to distinguish between radical onset gender dysphoria and persistent gender dysphoria, I think is extremely important. 
the former primarily young people of today we've been speaking of it primarily up till now the other persistent gender dysphoria afflicts those who suffer from it from a very early age and typically does not resolve something like uh, a thorn in the side that you must deal with we all have our particular thorns in some cases in rare cases gender dysphoria and we need to understand this because the treatment especially as parents as priests the treatment for these two things are different and we can get to that but first it's interesting because the entire reality of gender theory that seems to be everywhere within the last five years has completely fooled the world and there's yet another distinction that we have to make in gender theory this is why it's so confusing to talk about this stuff is because it's perpetually changing it's perpetually moving but I like to distinguish uh, between two general categories uh, one is pop gender theory which is what is affecting primarily the social this is what I like to call pop gender theory what you'll see today you know he's a he's a man trapped in a woman's body that's a woman trapped in a man's body that sort of thing but academic gender theory started much earlier and it's different and it plays into uh, an idea that things do certain cultural phenomena begin in academia but wind up morphing over time as they trickle down into society now we know this has happened because we see it all around us now but why and how it actually goes goes back a, a lot further than a lot of us would would think and I am particularly indebted here to Dr. Carl Truman who wrote a book an excellent book called the rise and triumph of the modern self and he was reflecting on an American sociologist named Philip Reef, and he has a three-world assessment of culture, which I think is particularly informing. Truman explains that first cultures, as the Greeks believe in fate and the gods, but there is some sort of transcendent framework. Second world cultures are one that we find ourselves in, faith. It moves from fate to faith and from gods to God. In both of these models, you have something transcendent that grounds your society. But in a third world culture, not to be confused with third world country, which was used to denote developing countries, a third world culture has abandoned the idea of transcendent meaning together, altogether. The only grounds of meaning or of laws or morality is in society itself, which is to say, whatever people feel to be right. This is what Alistair McIntyre in After Virtue calls emotivism. Whatever you feel, whatever your truth is, you know, however it makes you feel. And that's, it's erroneous to even talk about it because the goalposts are constantly moving for what's right and what's wrong. You have, um, Today, what was unthinkable 500 years ago, or even 100 years ago, is reality. And it seems so strange to us, but remember, we're living in a, th a second world cultural frame where our morality, truth, is grounded in something. Whereas a lot of society around us is self-referential. It's this third world culture. The thing is, all three of these models can exist in the world at the same time, which is what makes it particularly confusing and why conversations about this generally boil down to first principles or, or you can't ever get anywhere. But this doesn't necessarily explain this framework, how what's seemingly evident according to nature, the fact of a biological binary, is now laughable. It's laughed away as infantile, as lacking sufficient sophistication. Or indeed, how, how we're at a place in society where parents will raise their children as gender neutral and even carefully conceal 
their child's gender so that they're not socialized one way or the other. For this, Truman actually points to the 18th century Genevan philosopher Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau believed in the purity of the individual, of children, and their potential from birth, but that this was corrupted by society forcing things onto them. Translation for today, think gender roles. Forcing, oh, well, maybe he's not actually, maybe he's not actually a boy, you know. Truman writes, for Rousseau, the social order is a source of falsehood, or to use the modern term, inauthenticity. This idea has trickled down over the last 300 years, paved the way for what Philip Reif calls psychological man, what Charles Taylor calls expressive individualism, where people do not look beyond themselves for meaning, but within themselves. So the frame is now not just, not just referencing society, it's referencing the self. And so this is what this is, this is what has developed, really, what Truman calls personal, the pursuit of personal psychological happiness. To illustrate this turn, Truman in the book actually talks about his grandfather who worked a day job his entire life as a metal factory worker and how he was content and happy. And it was because the meaning for his job satisfaction, the reason he had job satisfaction is because that job allowed him to provide for his family. Whereas today, we think, well, just give me, like, do I feel happy about this? Do I feel good about where I'm working? Is this giving me psychological fulfillment? This change from external, so referencing your, your role, your ability to provide for your family, to internal psychological happiness, can be seen marching ever forward from Rousseau where the true self is self-directed and living its authentic truth. That's something you hear today. I can't live a lie anymore, I have to be myself. I'm actually a woman. This continued on with uh, people like the Romantics and then, then you have Nietzsche who emphasizes self-creation. By the time of the Industrial Revolution, Marx would frame this entire course of history as one of oppression. So you can see things starting to come together. The movement from an external or a transcendent frame into a psychological happiness to um, Nietzsche's emphasis on creating your own meaning. You have Sartre that does that as well. And then Marx framing everything as oppression, which means because all of history is oppression, at least in today's worldview, we have, to, we have to let people do whatever they want, or else you're oppressing them. So by the time Freud comes along, I mean, we've grown ever closer to, to where we are now. And personal psychological fulfillment, according to Freud, is, is always sexual. And the freedom and fulfillment of sexual expression, of course, with reference to however you want to to define that. And individual frustration is, at its core, sexual repression. Between Marx and Freud, societies now intuitively associates sexual freedom with political freedom. Because the notion that we are defined by our sexual desires is something that has penetrated all levels of culture. This is what Truman says. This is why sexual preference is as of the last 100 years, directly connected to personhood. So again, if you do not agree with how I identify, you're not recognizing my existence of a person as a person, which means basically you wish that all trans people were dead. This is what you're gonna hear in society. Um, and it's not gonna be explained like that necessarily, but this is how we got, this is how we got here. And of course, with Freud as well, this was um, related to the sexualization of, of children, which is what we're seeing on an ever-increasing basis. Now, implicitly, 
understanding this, people in the 20th century like Magnus Hirschfeld um, and Harry Benjamin would undertake to begin surgical manipulation of the male human body into an approximation of what would be a female body. But it's not really a female body, it's just lacking male distinctive parts. It's not the inclusion of female distinctive parts. It's just the removal of distinctive male parts. Now here I think it's important to also note that this is the exact same thing. This is the exact same argument as abortion. It's, it's what transhumanists like to call morphological freedom. Morphological freedom, of course, is the idea that I'm autonomous, I can do whatever I want to my own body. So what you have is you have abortion, you have euthanasia, you have transgenderism, and ultimately transhumanism, which is like the same idea, it's just you're, you're swapping out biological parts for technology. But we're not going to get into that. So continuing on from here, you have people like Alfred Kinsey. Some of you may be familiar with his, uh, his sex research and uh, his belief that all should be permissible to each his own, his own moral code. To impose something external is antiquated, it's uh, bigoted. Thus, if one does not appropriately legitimize one's sec sexual preferences today, people will feel oppressed. And this couching in the language of oppression and tying it to racial seg segregation is a strategic move. There's no way to talk about it other than it being a strategic move because you have the locus of identity placed on sexual preference, sexual identity, gender identity. And logically, it doesn't really work. They don't really work together, but we're not going to talk about that right now either. But that's where this is coming from. Toleration isn't enough. Like, we've seen this. In 2015, when someone refuses to bake a cake for same-sex marriage, like, I can tolerate in society, but toleration's not enough. I have to affirm. That's the, that's the other thing, and that's what's driving the militancy of this. But identity, and this is, this is the real trick here, because identity is socially negotiated. It's not something that we can just wake up one morning and I identify as a table, so, you know, I'm going to lay on my back and just have, uh, you know, glasses of wine or coffee or something <laughs> on me. And I'll just lay there for the rest of my life drinking wine and coffee. It doesn't work like that. Uh, because if we're trying to force it to work like that, then it's clearly nonsense. Because we are having to blackmail or threaten with legal action people to affirm our self-identification. Now, we understand this as Orthodox Christians because our identity is socially neg negotiated not just between individual human beings, but also with God. So, it's, um, we're in quite a pickle. But to continue on this long and laborious path that I have brought you down, <laughs> Uh, gender theory came out on the scene really uh, in the 1990s. And this is why probably in its current iteration it feels so soon, so, so recent. And um, this is where I want to talk about the two phases of gender theory. In its academic form you have Judith Butler who came out with uh, literature in the 1990s who emphasized gender performance over cosmetic modifications, which is basically like you act like a woman, you're a woman. Act like a man, you're a man. These repeated acts eventually came to be reflected in biology. This is evolutionary anthropology. Um, and that's where we got here, because this has happened for so long. But you can create yourself and do what you want, and eventually, you know, if enough people catch on or whatever, then we'll go from there. So this is, this is uh, Butler's idea. So for her, biology is, is arbitrary. In fact, I would wager I don't think I've seen a direct statement from her, but it's hard to get a direct statement from her for anything. It's one of these things where you have a whole page that's one sentence and it doesn't make any sense. Um, but I would wager that she, she doesn't 
necessarily think that transition is genuine because it's just performative. So you don't have to. You're capitulating to something, to a biological, arbitrary biological function if you transition. Over time, this idea trickled down into consciousness of the public, transforming on its way to the formative ideology that we have today, emphasizing instead of one performance, one's internal sense. So this is where the psychological comes in again. One's internal sense of gender. And this is best illustrated by something probably everyone here remembers. Is in 2015, Bruce Jenner came out as transgender said, oh, for all intents and purposes, I am a woman. In my soul, all this, I believe, yes, I am a woman. And this focuses on an inner feeling of maleness and femaleness. And usually, not always, especially in the youth today, but usually stays within the binary. But tends to extend into biological modification, such as sex reassignment surgery, and so on. You notice here that sex and gender, as I'm sure you're aware, um, is, is separated linguistically. And this separation, of course, from John Money in the 20th century, and much of gender theory actually rests on the results of his experiments, which he supposedly pro proved uh, his theory with his experiments, and that's that socialization equals sexual differentiation, if you want to put it succinctly. But his main experiment and his theories were based on a failed experiment. And if you're unfamiliar, I'm going to briefly sum up what that was. David was born as Bruce in 1965. He had an identical twin brother named Brian. Unfortunately, David was the victim of a botched circumcision, destroying all male genitalia. Her parents were distraught, didn't know what to do, which is why it was a great relief when they heard about John Money and quickly made an appointment to see him. Now, Money assured them that if they raised him as a girl, he would live a long, happy life. And so he recommended, and they subsequently did, further surgeries on this young toddler and uh, gave him hormones to develop what is an approximation of breasts. Now, he never knew any different, but what he did know is that he didn't like dolls, he didn't like dresses, and he secretly played with his brother's toys when his parents weren't listening. One day, after a severely depressive episode in 1980, his parents told him what happened, and feeling somewhat betrayed, but relieved at the same time, he began living as a boy, took the name David, and uh, lived the rest of his life as a boy. But his life tragically ended by his own hand in 2004. This is the core of all gender ideology. But money kept from speaking about this as a failure. In fact, he continued to laud it as a success, so much so that it was ingrained into the culture that even after it being coming out, what everything that happened, and it's, it's nasty, um, it was too late. Today, the internal gender identity might be considered more real than external sex and thus take precedence, just like psychological man and internal well-being has taken precedence. And this led Bruce Jenner, of course, to espouse in his now famous interview that in his soul he feels like a woman and in truth he is a woman. This raises a particular question for theology and to the point of my thesis, are souls sexually differentiated? The confusion around this topic was made manifest to me as I sat in the seminary classroom in 2017, where the question was posed by one of the brothers. Are souls gendered? Teacher put it to a, put it to a, a vote, and it was 50-50. It's not great. <laughs> so, they said, uh, one, one half said, yeah, souls are gendered, but they're the same sex as the biological sex. The other half were somewhat ambiguous, but wouldn't say souls were sexed. Now, having come across pieces, portions of the, the patristic writers, 
and going into this debate, or not debate, going into this class where no one knew that this question was going to be asked, I had by accident already read about this in patristic teaching. So I raised my hand, gave some sources, saying, okay, look, souls are sexless, but the guys weren't satisfied. So emailed them, said, here's the sources, look them up. And uh, unfortunately, one person decided to email back, citing Tertullian, of all people. And if you don't know, Tertullian is a, a he, he didn't end his life in the church, we'll just say, we'll just say that. Um, <laughs> and so my thesis was a response to that email, and it's the book back there. <laughs> um, so look, this is my attempt to contribute to the conversation we're having about gender. I think it's important that you guys are aware of radical onset gender dysphoria, of persistent gender dysphoria, all the intricacies, and maybe how we got there. Um, just because um, it's pretty it's pretty ingrained but in order to actually be grounded in anything because what we're really talking about here is anthropology is we have to look at man or the context of man as God man or Christ and thus this is our ultimate aim as Orthodox Christians in the first place is not to to read and you know memorize all of the Antonicene fathers in the original language. It is to live Christ. So there have been a lot of great works on in the last couple of years. To add to my list, you have Matt Walsh's recent documentary and book, What is a Woman? Ryan T. Anderson's When Harry Became Sally and so on. But none that have at least been widely publicized to my knowledge none of these critiques of gender ideology comes from theological anthropology, which is what I think, if we're talking about what is actually going to ground us, is this. Now, we do know, like, outside of, of, um, outside of this, the, the biological argument, which probably, I would guess, a multitude of people in this room might take would be there are male and there are female. Pretty self-evident. Which I don't disagree with. But what those within the walls of the church, yes, even the walls of the Orthodox Church, there are those that call this into question, unfortunately. And you guessed it, they're the very, very smart academic type. Literature from Orthodox bishops, Orthodox bishops, I don't really know how the... Literature from people espousing to be Orthodox bishops has surfaced, and priests, and academics, in attempt to justify all of this. One particular egregious article that I read, I won't bore you with the details, but the bishop said, oh, well, yeah, there's transgender, God's transgender. That was the summary of the article. It was... It was very a very modern approach, in the sense that it didn't make any sense. Um, but, so, hence the work from theological anthropology, even though we can maybe sit in this room and create our own echo chamber saying, yeah, men are men, women are women, woohoo! Um, I think it's important that we, we understand maybe how to uh, think about this a little more than just that. So I'm, I, I just want to make it explicitly, just explicit. There, from an orthodox, I'm speaking exclusively about an orthodox worldview. From an orthodox understanding, there is no way that you can make a case that is theologically tenable that someone is a different sex on the inside or gender on the inside than they are on the outside. It's not possible. Let me explain. So according to the fathers, the human being is made up of body and soul together, not one without the other. While in death, the two are temporarily and unnaturally separated, the body will be resurrected at the end of the age and reunited with the soul. The body itself is material. Soul is not. On account of the materiality of the body, 
it is able to be divided into parts. One can be born without a leg or six fingers or male or female. It doesn't subdivide the human race by essence. But each soul is single and simple, and the parts of the soul, if you want to call them parts, even though that's a crude way of putting it, are what we call energies. And these energies of the soul are singular, according to Palamas and many others, but many on account of their function. Sound familiar? It will. Yes, so this, the, the energies of the soul are singular, but the functions are many. So we might consider the classic tripartite division of the soul from insensitive, appetitive, intellectual, and so on. But the soul itself is singular on account of its essence. Both male and female possess the same energies of soul. This is important. Though they do possess different organs, and distinctions materially. This is because on account of an ancient conversation between Basil the Great, Gregory the Theologian, Gregory of Nyssa, and later John Chrysostom jumped on the bandwagon against a heretic named Eunomius, we know that to divide energy in an incorporeal reality or an immaterial reality is to divide it by essence. This, of course, was applied to the essence-energy debate in the fourth century, which was then later developed by Palamas to show essentially that um, God is both unknowable and knowable. Thus to distinguish the soul of men and the th soul of women, that is to say that they have different parts or sub substantially different, is to divide the human race by essence. On account of this all of the church fathers that speak of sexual differentiation in the soul. And this is, um, if you read a decent amount of patristic texts, you'll find that there are variations of things. This is one where there's no variation. Every single church father that talks about this, every single saint of our church that talks about this, and I say saint purposefully because Tertullian fell off the bandwagon, says souls are sexless. Now, this shouldn't scare us. Part of the brothers' reasoning for, for saying the soul should be sex is because they were afraid that maybe we were, we were going to fall into a trap that some of those smart academics I talked about have, talk, have fallen into, which is to say souls are sexless. That's true. So they're starting on solid ground. And then they, they move to shaky territory where it's like, well, yes, maybe one of the fathers said this, but it is not a consensus. <laughs> Say, uh, therefore, we're not going to be resurrected in our sex. We're going to be androgynous in heaven. It's like, ooh, and that was only one guy, just so you know. People will try to say it's more, but it's not. It's just Nyssa, Gregory of Nyssa. And then they move to, to completely way off to say, therefore, um, do whatever you want, basically. <laughs> um, you know, there's no, there's no purpose in the distinction between male and female, and so on. So, it's important to understand that sex is important because the body is important. And anyone that tells you differently is not upholding an orthodox understanding of the resurrection. Because we believe in the bodily resurrection. So what now? How do we move forward? Especially in this world. Uh, you can tell the, the conversation between the beginning of this talk and the end of this talk seem like worlds apart. So how do we go about this when we can't even agree on first principles in society at large? Now this is difficult, but I hope that um, at least some of the theological anthropology above can at least further fortify your soul against potential dangers in the future. But I think, I think this quote by Carl Jung, of all people, is actually really interesting. Man does not make his ideas. We could say that man's ideas make him. This is what we're seeing with uh, people yelling on the street at people, you know, protesting this research on, on gender dysphoria. This it, is interesting because it, it harkens back to our initial question and our method. In order to make a good beginning, we have to start at the end. 
And this is exactly what we have to do in the church. So we look at the saints. What did they do? This is what the Metropolitan Herotheus Flacos calls the science of spiritual medicine. Okay, what did they do? Did it work? Seem to work for them? Does it work for me? And this is essentially taking up your cross, which is where we began. And uh, boy, man, I wish we could avoid it. That's honest. Like, I wish. If there was a magic pill, I don't know. Maybe I would stay in the matrix. Like, that's a... <laughs> but it's painful, but it works. And that's, that's all I have written down.